Um, here's what we're doing. If you've got a Bible, yeah, I got a woo over here. and a <clears throat> So it's okay to clap. That's a good thing to clap for. So what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Matthew. And so if you need a Bible, you can, you can raise your hand. We'd be happy to be able to get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just keep it. There's one up, one up over here. And, um, but we've been going through the book of Matthew. And specifically right now in going through the book of Matthew, we've come to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the last couple of weeks, what Christian has tried to do is to lay out kind of the opening of it. And the opening of it, the important part to kind of understand is, is it lays out the character of this kingdom that Jesus is preaching. Now, the, the rest of the, 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 the book of Matthew is going to show us what, the, what it looks like by the life of Jesus. It's gonna, you're going to see how what he preached on comes to life in the way that Jesus interacts with people. But it's not just that the king has this character. It's that everybody that follows in G- with Jesus, anyone who follows in his path and embraces his ways that comes to him, we too are going to begin to take on that character. Now, he hasn't told us yet how that's going to happen, but we know that when the Holy Spirit comes, that now because of the work of Jesus, we are going to be transformed and we're going to start to then take on each of those characteristics that, that Christian was talking about that make it the, the character of what our kingdom looks like. Now, what I want to do this morning is I just want to read it to you so that we can kind of get a a running start on it. But then what I want you to see is, though, is that it's not just something to be talked about, but it's something that's meant to come to life in who we are. So here's what I want to do. Just read along with me. We're going to read the the 12 verses, or actually it's the 8 verses or so that that Christian, uh, he preached through. But let's start in verse 3 if you've got your Bibles. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, so they'll re- because they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oops, let me go back one. Righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, on so many levels, what he tried to kind of lay out there for us was is that this idea of blessed is, is the idea of truly the good. The good life is kind of the way that he framed it. That living in this particular way, the way in which Jesus is going to model for us how to live, he said the way that Christian brought this to, to, to bear on us is that his path, his ways are the good life. This is the good life. It's the character that starts to get formed in who we are as people. But one of the things that hit me while I was kind of studying through this as I was kind of looking through each of these things is how in the world would these characteristics all coming together influence the world? Like if I was going to influence the world, I wouldn't look at people and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. I would be like, are you kidding me, poor in spirit? Blessed are the people that kick butt and take names and take charge. That's who inherits the world. Blessed are those who mourn. There's no crying. No. This is Christianity. Blessed are those who are meek. Seriously? The meek are going to take this thing on? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I appreciate that, but we got things to do. Blessed are the merciful. There's no mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Yeah, whatever. Blessed are the peacemakers. No, this is a war. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted. Oh no, we're going to persecute people. In other words, when you look down at this in Jesus later on, right, he's going to tell us that this thing is supposed to go to all the nations. It makes no sense whatsoever in the world that we live in. This is not what good leaders do. This is not what the people that are seeking to bring about change do. No, this is the exact opposite. But yet in Jesus' kingdom, he takes what is so what we think is human wisdom and instead he gives us God's wisdom and starts to show us like Paul does, like in 1 Corinthians 1, this kingdom is upside down and the way that Jesus was going to impact the world was not through being through gaining machismo, not through trying to be that person that's the great all leader that's going to take kind of everything over through how he does things. But he says, this is the characteristic of what it's going to look like. If you really want to see the kingdom in action, watch this. And I would even say this. Anytime the church has left this, we've created a bad name for Jesus. But when we live this, watch out. And not only that, but when the church has lived like this, it has not only spread to Judea and Samaria, but we know this, it has gone to the ends of the earth. So what we're going to do now, tell them hi, whoever that is. What we're going to be doing now, though, is he's going to now tell us, well, how is it going to go? Now, what he's going to do is he's going to bring two things, all right? And we'll talk about this in a second. On one end, he's going to take salt, all right? Now, when we look at it, we think, can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, you know the way that the world is going to be impacted? Salt. <laughs> I'd be sitting there like, what? And not only that, but he's going to talk about this idea of light, now in this, in these two things that he's going to grab, he's going to say to him, you are the, look at that, the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt and it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here it is. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to the all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, the interesting part, just so everybody knows, when we choose to live in what Jesus is going to define as salt, or we choose to live as light, one of the things you have to understand is the world is not going to get it. And anytime the church has chosen to live like this, they get persecuted. That was his point. When you choose to live like salt and light, which is basically these beatitudes that he's been talking about, when you choose to live this way, the world is not going to understand you at all. But, he says, it is these two characteristics that are going to be the way in which the gospel is not only going to change the world, but let me just say this to anybody that's not a follower of Jesus, it is also the way that God is going to change you. Now let's look at some of these things real quickly, kind of just putting it together. Now, one of the things that he's going to talk about is he's going to talk about, if you got it in your Bible, he's going to talk about the earth and he's going to talk about the world. Now, by kind of comparing this, he's going to kind of show us that the, the earth that he's talking about, the world that he's talking about, is actually dark. That's one of the things he's going to talk about, is that living in this world today is dark. And he's going to grab this other side of it. He's going to say, living in this world today, people are that way, they are unsalty. Now, we'll, we'll kind of explain that a little bit differently as we come at it. But he's just letting us know these are the two things. Now, light is kind of easy to explain to us why it's so important. Even we understand this a little bit, but kind of we don't. And you kind of have to be in a place where there is no light to kind of understand how important it is. 
This last week, we went to my sister's house. She lives somewhere out in the middle of Arizona. I mean, we're out there with all the rest of the preppers and stuff. It was crazy. And so we're out in the middle of the desert, and they don't have pollution like we think about pollution. They have what they call light pollution. I had never even heard of light pollution before. But after a certain amount of time, you have to turn off all the lights. Well, after that time, all the lights go down and I'm grabbing my kids because my sister puts the rest of the family in the house and she puts my family in the barn. I don't know what that meant. But we went down to the barn. Actually, there's a really nice apartment down there. So we go, we go down to the, to the barn and partway down, I, I had this light and I was kind of shining out in front of it and I turned it off. And if you've ever been where there's no light before, it just went pitch black. And all of a sudden, I felt my youngest son snuggle up next to my leg. And as I, he snuggles up, he goes, Dad, turn back on the light. <laughs> and I, I go, why, buddy? He goes, Dad, do you know what could be out here? <laughs> so in his head, we were already running into the boogeyman. We understand light. We need light. Without light, we kind of don't know how to operate. We can't see things. People understand that it just feels dangerous. Now, the interesting part, though, that he's going to compare it to is this idea of salt. Now, whenever we think salt in our culture, we think of the need, right, to pour it on our stuff because our stuff doesn't taste right. Um, I'm just one of those people that no matter what you put in front of me, I'm instantly throwing salt and pepper on it because I know no matter what you taste, it's not good enough for me. And so I'm always pouring salt in. And generally, we think taste. And when we look up here, it does say lost its taste. You're going to see that that's probably not a good translation. But salt in this case actually is not about taste. It's about preservation. That back in the day, right, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have refrigerators. Uh, what's funny is, is I was trying to think of an illustration for lack of refrigeration. And we get to my sister's house and her, two, her big giant refrigerator, it went bad. And so we were trying to figure out what to do with stuff, right? So we were putting it outside. Well, in their world, they didn't put it in the fridge. They actually put salt in it. They would use it as a preservative and what they would do is, is they would grab it and they would just work the salt into the meat and as the salt got into the meat, it was a form of preservative. In other words, as meat decays, we put salt in it. Now what he's trying to help us understand again is, is that we as Christians, we're this group of people that when we talk about now these ones that, that are coming into the world, we are salt, which means if we are salt, we are a preservative in a world that's decaying. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. Or in a dark world, we're the light that comes in. We're the ones that start to show the truth of who Jesus is, is kind of what we're going to get after. Now, the biggest thing, let me just say this, that he's laying out is a distinction. It's a distinction between those that are followers of Jesus. And he says, I want you to be distinct. Now we're going to talk about, though, the idea that this distinction is not supposed to be so that people are pushed away from us. Because if we're a light that doesn't enter into darkness, then we're, he's going to talk about we're just a, a lampstand that we put something over it. That makes no sense. If we're not salt that gets pushed into society as a means of a preservative, then we're no good for the culture in which we live in. But, and here's what's important, we must be distinct. We must be different. He says, when my kingdom impacts your world one day, my expectation is you by nature will be changed. In this case, he's going to talk about salt. You will be these groups of people that will be a preservative. You will be these ones who are a light. You're not the sun. He says, I'm the one that's the sun, but you are this light to the world. Okay, is everybody with me? If you're not with me, raise your hand. <laughs> I didn't think anybody would. It made me feel good. But anyway, not only that, 
But there's another side of us that sometimes we miss is that we make that you singular. Like somehow I have to be the light. But like I've done before, I've shown you that actually people from the South, they get ancient languages. It's actually y'all. He's not saying to them, you individually be this. Actually, he's looking around at these disciples and he's saying, y'all. Because Jesus was also from the South like Paul. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Now this is going to become important just a little bit, but he's connecting this idea that you as this group of people, you're supposed to be distinct. But the key issue is, is that when we're not distinct, he talks about this idea that we lose its taste, and we'll talk about what that means in a second, or we become the city on a hill that's hidden. We are not to be a church in any stretch of the imagination that's not supposed to impact the world. We are supposed to engage the world in which we live in. We're not supposed to run away, but we're to engage rightly within it. And we're going to talk about what that means here in just a second. So let's look down at verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, let's dig into this first one. Let's ask the question is, what does he mean by salt? He says, y'all are the salt of the earth. Now, what we talked about is, is this idea of it, it's, it prevents decay. Now, in, in the Bible, there's two other kind of places that talk about this idea of preventing decay. One is the government. It's given the sword to be able to make sure society doesn't go off the deep end. We're given moms and dads to be able to come in and discipline their children so that they're not punks. But then Jesus talks about, though, there's something special about this group of people called the church. This church, he says, is so special that when it enters into this particular community, it hinders decay. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the world left to itself, just understand this, that doesn't know Jesus Christ will go its own way in whatever direction it thinks right. But the Bible talks about way back in the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs also mentions this. There's a way that seems right to people, but in the end, it's what? Destruction, it's death. In a very cool way, what the church says is that no, as we rub ourselves into this world in this kind of way in which we rub ourselves into the brokenness of this world, is that we are designed by God to speak into it. And this idea of salt, as you know this, if you get salt rubbed in a wound, it can even seem biting at times. We're this group of people that says, no, that is not the way the world is designed to live. There's a better way. There's this kingdom of heaven. We're designed to live differently. Now, what he's speaking to here is, is the church must not be silent. Now, sometimes we think of it on the big scale, right, where we just got done with an election and everybody's saying, we need to speak into the big picture of government, which we do. We need to speak into elections and all kinds of things. But have you ever thought about it? It's even in the smallest things. We need to speak into our workplace. We need to speak into kids' sports. Have you ever been to a kid's sport lately? <laughs> Satan dwells there. <laughs> we speak into it. We say, no. These kids are just playing a stupid game. Yeah, but you don't understand. My kid is going to get a scholarship to whatever college and become a professional. And I'm sure one day they'll be playing World Cup. And I look at them and I say, what drug have you been smoking, right? There's no chance of it. We speak into it. We say, yeah, we're supposed to have a great time. We're supposed to engage within these things. There's a different way. We speak into it from a family standpoint. 
And every day I can promise you my family needs salt rubbed into it. And that's not just the kids, that's me. What he's saying is, is we're to engage into it as a preservative to keep it from going as bad as it could be. Now listen to me. You are never going to ebb the flow of where everything is flowing. This world and its system is falling apart. You can't stop it, but Jesus says to us, get in there and prevent it. Speak truth into the world. The other part of it that's important here is, though, is that the moment that we start not being who we're supposed to be, we lose, and the word here is it's taste, but let me, let me translate it how it's supposed to be translated. If salt becomes unsalty, which is absurd, how shall its saltiness be restored? In other words, if you don't act like who you're supposed to be, how will the world ever know? Now, the way in which this kind of goes at it, let me kind of see it. Uh, like it, some of you know, chemistry is one of my background, but we're not going to geek out too hard into chemistry. We're just going to go super shallow, okay? We're going to go right there. Does anybody know the chemical makeup of salt? What? Sodium chloride. Good. We put a little other junk in there, but for right now, just sodium chloride. Now, back in the day, they didn't have manufacturing. And so what they would do is you'd have these impurities inside of the salt. And they would store the salt. And oftentimes it was stored inside of a humid environment. And the problem is when water connects to sodium chloride, it begins to kind of take the sodium chloride out. And all that got left were the impurities. Meaning over time, if you didn't protect the salt and keep the salt salty, it would just become this nasty little powder. Now, here's what I think that's so important. And this is why these little words that, that y'all is important. See, he talks about in Luke this idea that salt is good, but if it loses its taste, how shall it be restored? Now, watch this. It's no use for the soil or for the manure. And here's the word, it's thrown away. Now, on one level, you're sitting there going, what? Thrown away? What does that mean? Well, he talks about it again inside of Matthew 5, and he says it's no longer good for anything except to be. Now, in this case, he says thrown out and trampled on people's feet. Now, people have oftentimes used this from an individual standpoint is if you don't live a certain way, if you don't come up to a certain standard, God's going to throw you out. You're going to be of nothing. But he's not talking to the individual here. He's talking to the who? The y'all. Now, this is where it's so important for us as Cornerstone. If we don't remain salty, if we don't continue to embrace Jesus as our true king, and we embrace this idea of the beatitudes in our lives, we walk the path in the ways of Jesus, after a while, a church just becomes diluted, and it's just powder. And even by the time we get to Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, I'll take your lampstand, you're of no value. Now, if you follow church history, what's so crazy, when you work from where Jerusalem is out and you follow it then kind of through the rest of the world, even over to the United States, eventually the, word, the church just becomes this useless place that's a giant building and that's all it is. We have to protect the saltiness of who we are. We need to be groups of people that gather together on a regular basis and ask each other, are we salty? Are we the ones that are keeping the ways of Jesus? Are we following him and knowing him and in loving him and embracing him? Is he our life? Because the moment the church starts to forget who we are, we're just powder. And God is not afraid to say, well, if this church is just powder, it's not about losing your salvation. It's no better than just to be thrown in the street. 
And I do not want Cornerstone to be that church that God just looks at and goes, no value here in Simi Valley. Now that's the first thing. He's talking about that. Now here's the second one, this idea of y'all again. This is important. In the second case now, when we talk about it, he says to them, y'all are the light of the world. Now this light thing is super important as we kind of look at it from the standpoint of it's not salt any longer, but now there's something that we're asking in our, in our heads, we're asking this question, how, does we, how do we ebb the flow of what's going on inside of our world? How do we do it? Now, in this particular case, what he's going to talk to us about is, is that we, the way we do this is by being light. Now, in one case, right, Jesus, in late, uh, kind of earlier on in the book of John, he talks about the fact that he's the light of the world. But then secondly now, he kind of talks about in this particular case, we are the light of the world. Now, what does he mean? Well, oftentimes the way people would think about lights is they would think about lights like the sun, which was the big light, right? This was the big one. This is the way that was the monster one. And oftentimes this is the way we'd picture Jesus. He is the great light. For us, though, the idea would be we're like stars. We're like the twinkling stars. We're also this light. We're not the grand light, but we're these little lights. And what he's talking about in this particular case is, is that you are those little lights. Now, there's a song I used to sing to my kids. This little light of mine. What? <laughs> yeah, you sound much better. No, actually, some of you don't sound very good. You sound like me. I would sing that to them when they were little. But the other one I would sing is twinkle, twinkle. Oh, stop. How I wonder what you are. What's so cool is, is that Jesus is the light that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3 shines light into us and demands that the world ask, how I wonder what you are. Good job. We're designed to be different and we're designed to shine. Now the question is though, in this text though, how is it that we shine or what is it that we shine? Well, the thing that we shine in this particular context is, is we're designed to shine good works. We're designed to live differently. We're designed to talk differently. We're designed to do everything differently within this world. And when we do these good works, let me show you what happens. When we do them, we don't get the praise. The Father who is in heaven, he gets the glory. Why? Because the light isn't ours, it belongs to Jesus. So the question is, how do we shine? We hang around Jesus. We together know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus. We don't create our own light. We're more like the moon. We're designed to just reflect into this world the light that is shining off of us. I would even say this, the longer that you walk with Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus, you become this one now that begins to shine in the way that he's designed us to shine. Why? Because we begin to look like him. See, the ultimate goal of discipleship is not that we know Bible trivia. The ultimate goal of discipleship is not that we speak things. The ultimate goal of discipleship is not that we go through the motions of showing up on a Sunday. The ultimate goal of discipleship is that all of us start to look more and more and more like Jesus. 
And the only way you can look like Jesus more and more and more is to be near him and with him inside a local church. That's how we gaze upon his glory. The whole idea is similar to like in the Old Testament when Moses would, he would go in to be with God and when he was in God, he would come out and his face would be glowing because he was with God and he had to cover up his face. But the moment that all of us begin to do that, we begin to then inexplicably and absolutely innately begin to shine the light out into others. And the way that Jesus talks about it is we become a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The reason that we teach God's word, the reason that we call you to Jesus at a church like this is, is we know that when people come to know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus, this church as a whole then begins to shine within our community. We become, in this case, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, what, what did that mean? One of my favorite things to do is to backpack. And in this place in Colorado that I used to backpack, there was this kind of a small town that used to sit up on a hill at about 12,000 feet. You would start almost 50 miles away, and as you would start to hike, you'd go through these different paths. But every night when the lights would go down, you could see this glow over the top of one of the mountains. And no matter where you were, each night you'd look up and you would wonder where you're going and you would see that particular light. In other words, what he's saying is, is it can't be hidden. And I will never forget each time we would come around the corner and we would see that particular town and it would just light up the entire sky because it was a city set on a hill. Now for Cornerstone and all the other churches that know, love, and follow Jesus, this is who we all collectively are designed to be. Now I want you to see something. You know this. I love cheesy illustrations. So everybody grab your phone. Can you turn off the lights? Everybody grab your phone. This is the one time it's okay to grab your phone. All right, shut off this light too. Now in some ways, right, when I kind of have this, this is the light that I was using to, to get around. Now, if your name starts with the letter between A and G, turn on your light and kind of just hold it up. Okay, so it's starting to get a little brighter in here, right? Okay, now if it's H through M, turn on your light. All right, N through Q. All right, R through Z. You've got a different name. I don't know. <laughs> but check this out. See, I know this is kind of cheesy, but this is who we all in a dark world were designed to be. We're designed to be different. We're designed to be unique. We're designed to be these ones in a world that is sitting there feeling around and within the case of, of just sin and darkness that's all around them. And suddenly the church comes in and we begin to be this light and that world begins to know, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. Jesus was speaking on the Beatitudes and saying, the more and more we get transformed into this character, the light of just not me as the individual, but now us as the church begins to display itself. Now, go ahead and turn on the lights for me. Now, here's the last thing that I want to talk about. The problem sometimes, though, comes in how we perceive what it is that we're supposed to be or what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Now, there was one group of people. Can you put me back up here? There was one group of people in the, in the New Testament that they perceived the world as Sadducees. They were the ones that were the keeper of the temple. 
But the way that they perceived the world was is that they would accommodate. That word accommodate just kind of means they would take on kind of the realities of the world that was around them. They would start to look too much like the world. And let me just say this. If Cornerstone looks to, starts to look too much like the world, we're no longer a light that's shining out into the darkness. So let's say this word together. Ready? The first word, accommodate. Accommodate. Okay, keep that one in mind. The second group of people up there were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees weren't as, as highfalutin as like the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the ones that would keep the synagogues in local towns. But their big thing is, is that they not only followed the law, but they followed the teachers of the law. And they did everything they could to then help others. And I'll put help in quotes to be able to follow the law as well. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, you've just heaped up and put expectations on people and they can't. In fact, one of the kind of Pharisees of the time was a rich young ruler and Jesus came to him and, he, and the guy says to him, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, basically keep the law. And he says, been doing it since I was a kid, bro. He didn't say bro, but let's just say he did. <laughs> the idea was, is, is that on one group they accommodate, but the other group here, I would say this, they think they've arrived. So what's the first one? Second word? Arrived. Now here's the second group, the Essenes. Now the Essenes were a unique group of people. They actually meant the light. That was kind of what they were known of as a group. But they were a group of Pharisees that realized, man, we can't stay inside of our community, so we need to run away out into the desert. And we had the Dead Sea Scrolls because of these people. They ran off into the desert because they believed that the only way that they could become the people God intended them to be was to run off in the desert and be alone. In other words, they would flee. All right, so first word, Accommodate. Second word? Third word? Flee. Okay, one last word. The zealots. These guys and gals were feisty. They loved to fight. They were a group of Pharisees that honestly believed that if they could just start a fight with the Romans and start a war, that the Messiah would come back in the middle of it and that somehow then he would then become the conqueror that they had been waiting for in the world. They loved to, here's the word, fight. First word? Accommodate. Second word? Third word? Fourth word. Now, I bring all of those up because I really do believe is that those four words define even us today. And I say that from the standpoint that over the last three years is that there were certain groups of people when kind of everything happened, they begin to accommodate. They wanted just kind of everything to get along. They wanted to be able to live their lives as they were kind of meant to live their lives. And so therefore there were Christians that started to accommodate. They began to look like the world. There was other groups of people that would kind of stand in front of everybody. We know where we're supposed to go. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We're the ones that have it all. They were kind of like this group of people that thought they'd arrived. There was a third group of people. They went to Texas and Tennessee and to Idaho and Arizona. I'm just kidding. There were reasons some people left. I'm just, I'm just kidding, but I'm not. Um, but they were like, forget it. We're just going to flee. And then you know this, boy. There were some people that were ready to fight. Boy, they had their dukes up ready to go. Now, here's the deal, though. Jesus never asked us to act to accommodate. He never asked us to act like we've arrived. He never asked us in any kind of a way to run. And he never asked us in any kind of a way to fight. In fact, he just says, be the Beatitudes. 
Now, it's not just on a great scale, like we're talking about maybe on a national level or a regional level, but I was even thinking about this from my own family. And I'm even thinking about it from myself. I was sitting there, I was asking my wife on the way home, hey, baby, like, you know, what do you think? How would this apply? And, and she was kind of giving me some ideas. And then all of a sudden I started thinking about myself in this way. How am I salt? How am I preser a preservative in my family? And how is it that I'm a light so that they might see the way to Jesus? And how then we might we be a family and a church that we're supposed to be? So I ran myself through a test. I kind of asked my wife at one point, you know, we were kind of talking about me and her, and I started to realize I accommodate. When kind of things get rough in my family, I don't know how many of you think you're a peacemaker, but you're an accommodator. I totally start to accommodate. I'm like, oh, hey, hey buddy, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to keep the peace inside of my family when instead I probably just need to be salt in the way that I operate. I need to kind of sometimes just let people know this is the truth of what it is. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm, an, I'm an accommodator, but am I a Pharisee? Oh, I totally think I know what's right. In fact, I was sitting there disciplining one of my kids the other night, and I'm sitting there, I know in my own head, I'm like, do you understand who I am? I'm a man of God. I'm a pastor. I'm a vicar. I'm a man of the cloth. And in my own head, I've totally missed the point. That is not salt and light. I even started asking myself the question, am I in the Essene? Oh, my goodness. When it comes to parenting, does anybody else sometimes just want to run away and go fetal? Okay, you don't. I do. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, Lord, are they 18 yet? And then I find out when they're 18, it gets worse. But then there's other times, boy, sometimes I don't accommodate, and sometimes I don't think I've arrived, and sometimes I don't run, but I'm ready to fight. And boy, oh boy, man, sometimes with my kids, they'll do something. And instead of being salt and light and being a peacemaker, instead of being one who mourns, instead of being one who is meek, I get the dad look that is this look. <laughs> Even though I know I'm not really that big, but it makes me feel good in front of them, you know. And then I just become the ape, you know, and I'm going crazy inside of my home. That's not the peacemaker. See, it's not just supposed to happen on that level of the national level. It's supposed to happen in our very homes. We're supposed to begin to live these amazing realities, the Beatitudes in our homes. And we're supposed to live them amongst our friendships and in our workplaces. Could you imagine if God's people went into the workplace and lived the Beatitudes in a workplace, not trying to climb the corporate ladder and push everybody out of the way, but just were God's people. And can you imagine in a town like Simi Valley, if we actually begin to live like that city on the hill, like that salt that we are. Now listen to me. If we live this way, the beatitude way, people aren't going to get us. And there's going to be persecution. But let me tell you something. We must be who we are. You all are salt. You all are light. In some ways I wish... I could pull back our eyes to help you see. Do you understand if you're a follower of Jesus, do you get who you are? You're a redeemed child of God. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You are one that has gone from death to life. Your father is the great father of all things, the creator of all things. 
you're a part of the greatest mission of all time. And one day when Jesus Christ returns, you won't just be anybody. You will be the redeemed of the Lamb sitting at the table, not just being salt and light, but being the very children of God celebrating the work of Jesus. But for right now in the world that we live in, if we don't play our part, if we're not the salt and if we're not the light, why do we even exist And so when we talk about the discipleship pathway, just understand this. This is my heart. I want us to be that salt and I want us to be that light. But we got to, in order to be that, we got to learn the ways of Jesus and we need to walk his path.